Hey, my name is Amanda. I want to thank you for joining us today. We hope that this message inspires you, builds your faith, and helps you find your next step toward Jesus. Enjoy the message. Morning again. Greetings to everybody worshiping online and those in Benton. Uh, about oh, 17, 18, 19 years ago or so, Jim Collins wrote a book that has become a a modern classic, a must-read in uh, the area of business and management. And uh, the book is called Good to Great, and there's a picture of Jim Collins. And I had the uh, privilege of hearing him speak um, a couple years after he released the book. Um, I think it was at a global leadership summit that he spoke. And what he did in this book was he wanted to look at what were the distinguishing characteristics of companies that went from being good, good companies, solid companies that made a profit every year to great companies in the upper tier, the upper echelon of companies, companies that outperformed the typical market share by, by five-fold at least, so uh, really exceptional companies, some of the greatest in the world. And so uh, when they went into this research, they tried to go in like everybody else with, uh, you know, uh, taking, putting your biases aside. Um, and they began doing their research. And one of the biases they recognized going into it was they, they didn't want to end up in the typical place of it's all on the leader. We Americans tend to put everything on the leader. We, we give the leader, when something goes well, we give the leader all the credit. When something doesn't go well, we give the leader all of the blame. He said, we want to avoid that. But he said the research kept, there were a lot of things in the book he talked about, but one key element kept pointing to the CEO of these companies. And he discovered that in these truly great companies, again, that outperformed all the others, there were some characteristics in those CEOs that were consistent across the board. And there was something incredibly surprising, something they did not expect in their initial research uh, about these qualities. And um, Collins Start, described these leaders as level five leaders. He had different levels. A level one is a very competent person and then up the scale until you get to level five. Again, people leading at an exceptionally high level. And, and, and he described this, and here was the, the, the shocking find. He said, level five leaders display a powerful mixture of personal humility and indomitable will. They're incredibly ambitious, but their ambition is first and foremost for the cause, for the organization and its purpose, not themselves. While level five leaders can come in any kind of personality package, they're often self-effacing, quiet, reserved, and even shy. He said in, in their interviews as they spoke with these CEOs and executives, he says, we were struck by the way they talked about themselves, or rather, didn't talk about themselves. They'd go on and on about the company and the contributions of other executives, but they would instinctively deflect discussions about their own role. And I remember listening to him, and again, no one expected that. We expect CEO, bold, brash, you know, get, you know, wanting all the attention, kind of self-centered and self-focused. He said, no, no, no. And I remember was listening to that research and then later read the book. I thought, huh, isn't that interesting? That... Research is discovering what Jesus taught 2,000 years ago. And that is that the proud will be humbled and the humble will be exalted. Interesting, huh? 
proven in research. Well, today, uh, we're going to continue this series we're calling IMHO, in my humble opinion. And we began last week by looking at Jesus himself, and the only time in all four Gospels where he describes his own heart, only one place, Matthew 11, does he do this. And when he has an opportunity to pull back the veil and let us see into the inner core of who he was, he said, for I am gentle and humble of heart. So this was who Jesus was, who he is. And his disciples called to be like him. It should be characteristic of us as well. Uh, Well, today what I want to do is I want to look at some of the teachings of Jesus around humility. Last week we saw that this was very much present in his life and he was humble. But what did he teach about it? Quite a bit. In fact, when you go through the Gospels, you will find scattered throughout the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, several teachings on the importance of humility. And in these stories today, we're going to look at a story out of Luke 14, and then four chapters later, out of Luke 18, we see that with humility, our relationships with God and with others flourish just like they did for those, do for those CEOs of those really great companies, we flourish when humility is a part of our life. Now, before I get into the parable, the first parable, I think we need to dispense with a myth, all right? This is a myth that's been around for a long, long time. John Wesley, founder of Methodism, taught this. I picked up on it, and I taught it. So I'm here preaching against my younger self, okay? Uh, and the myth is this. That if I'm humble, I won't know it. Like when I say, oh, I'm humble. Yeah, automatically you're disqualified. (laughs) Or if I talk about humility wanting it, or if I uh, um, say that it's present in my life, then, then somehow that just disqualifies me from humility whatsoever. And if that's the case, why are we taught over and again on the pages of the New Testament to pursue humility? If it's something we really can't ever have or recognize ourselves, uh, then why? You know what I've noticed? That mindset that says, well, you know, if I say I'm humble, I'm not humble or whatever. Now, certainly we shouldn't be promoting our virtues. That's not the point. It ties people up in knots. And you think, oh, you know, then I, just, I just don't even want to mess with humility because I may get it all wrong. I may wind up being proud. And so I just won't even talk about it. And eventually it leads to us just forsaking all effort altogether. We just give up on trying to be humble because we feel that if we become humble, then we really aren't because we know that we're humble and so forth. So Jesus, though, teaches often on humility. And not just him, but the other writers of the New Testament. Consider what the Apostle Paul says here in Colossians. He says here, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. He tells us some things to put on as clothing our spirit with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Both things. Remember he said, I am gentle and humble of spirit. Both things that Jesus had. He says, clothe yourselves with these things. Do you know what clothes you have on today? Probably. I only know because my wife picked these out, okay? When, and they match pretty well today. What do you think? It's because she picked it out. When my clothes don't match, it's a good clue. Linda's out of town that weekend, okay? All right? But here, he says, clothing. You should know the clothing that you wear. And one of the things that should clothe your spirit is humility. Um, And then Peter, another writer, one of the disciples of Jesus, in his first letter said, finally, all of you, all of you, not just the super saints, all of you, 
Be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. So if there are all these exhortations in Scripture for us to be humble, then it means it should be something that we um, strive after, that we want in our life. Um, So now we get to Jesus' parable. And um, this is one of the few that we're told why Jesus gives the parable. All right, and it, it tells us in, chap, in verse 7, in chapter 14, he says, When he, Jesus, noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. So he's at a dinner party. Uh, in Luke's gospel, more than the others, Jesus is found eating meals with people. Some of his best teaching happens at mealtimes, all right? Um, and, and so he's noticing that in this particular gathering, the people are jockeying for position and choosing the seats of honor. So I want to show you a diagram. This was very typical in the first century of how a a dinner would be set up. Now, the U-shaped would be a low-lying table because people lay down. They reclined when they ate. With one hand, they'd uh, support their head. The other, they would eat, all right? And so it would be a U-shape, and in the very center, upper part of the U was the host. And then the host would have somebody to his or her right or left, and those were the places of great honor. And then uh, so forth and so on. So further away you got, the least honorable. uh, And the least honorable seats were the very end. Now, you got invited, which is really a big thing. You were honored by the host, but the most honored sit to the right or left, which is so different. I thought, well, how does that sit kind of work in church? So we did this little diagram for, like, uh, how it works in church today, and it kind of looks like this. Yeah, there's the host. In the places of highest value at the very back, right? And you only sit here on Easter because you came late to church that day, right? Look, nobody, nobody. Why did we buy these seats? What a waste of money. Anyway, go back to the other one. So, so you see here, and in Jesus' parable, very simple teaching. It says, when you go in to the dinner, don't go up and sit in the place of honor. In fact, Go to the lowest place. Because if you sit at the place of high honor, the host may say, oh, sorry, friend, that's, that's reserved for Joe. He's not here yet. You need to come down here. And then you get humiliated in front of everybody. Instead, he says, no, um, you go to the least place of honor. And then if, if the host has you seated higher in the, in the table, he's going to move you up and you're going to be kind of honored in front of everybody. Now, as we see, Jesus is not against honor. Um, he's against grabbing for it and reaching for it for yourself. Now, interestingly, you know, he gets Jesus um, a lot. You know, most of his teaching, much of his teaching came right out of the Old Testament. Let let us, Proverbs chapter 25. Let me read this for you. Proverbs 25, verse 6. Do not exalt yourself in the king's presence and do not claim a place among his great men. It is better for him to say to you, come up here, than for him to humiliate you before his nobles. You know, much of the teaching of Jesus came out of what we call the Old Testament, for him it was the scriptures. And today, where I think there's um, an unfavorable view view of the Old Testament, uh, we need to remember that. Jesus loved the scriptures. He loved the Old Testament. In fact, he committed it to memory, which every good uh, Jewish male at least would have done in the first century. Um, And so this concept comes right out of Proverbs. And again, what we're seeing here, Jesus is not against honor. Later, Paul, in his letter, says, give honor to whom honor is due. But notice what it says, give honor. Honor should be given, not sought after. 
It should be bestowed, not grabbed. Jesus is against self-promotion. Jesus is against using your position and the power that you have to get you more praise. Not against honor. He's, a, he's, he's for a humble approach where you are given honor. So that's the first parable. Now, we're going to go over here a few chapters, four chapters later, Luke chapter 18. And uh, again, in this passage, this is another time that we're told why Jesus gives the parable. All right? Verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Okay? You get it? And... Among religious folks, there's a lot of being confident in your own righteousness and looking down on others. And that's why he gives this particular parable. So it's what we would call a corrective parable. Jesus is correcting behavior, attitudes that were wrong in the eyes of God. And this, what follows is a very important parable. In fact, as doing my research, I discovered for the first time that uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church, which is huge, has a special Sunday every year called the Sunday of the Pharisee and Tax Collector. It's the third Sunday before Lent. And on that third Sunday before Lent, we're in the second Sunday of Lent, so it would have been just a few weeks ago. On the third Sunday before Lent, all the churches in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, pause, and they contemplate this parable because they feel it's so very, very important. And indeed, it is. Because this contrasts for us the way of self-sufficiency versus God-dependency. My mentor, Bob Tuttle, would tell us all the time that self-sufficiency is the greatest sin in the Bible. Because if you're self-sufficient, you don't think you need God. The greatest sin in the Bible. It's, it's addressed on page after page in our scriptures. And so here, we're introduced to a very self-sufficient man. Let's read this. In verse 10, it says, two men, it's Jesus' parable, two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. All right, so here, you have the setting. Jesus is contrasting two very different kinds of people. But I want you to notice, it's not so much about the people. He's not praising tax collectors and condemning Pharisees as much as he is addressing the attitudes that often exist in those folks. Um, now, in our day, that does strike us as, as anything. Uh, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't stand out to us because um, tax collectors, Pharisees, that, that was a first century kind of thing and, and uh, contrast. We might say the Sunday school teacher and the drug dealer. Two people, very, very different in the eyes of everybody else, honored. And then in the eyes of everybody, someone dishonored. So go back to the story. It says here, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now, here's this guy. And it says he prayed. But I want you to notice the prayer stops after the first word. 
God. After that, he glances at God and contemplates himself because the rest of it is, God, I thank you, I'm such a marvelous man. Um, There's no uh, request. They don't ask anything of God because he doesn't need anything from God. He's got it all covered. There's no repentance. He doesn't see that he's got a problem with sin. Um, uh, I mean, nothing. He's really just um, raving about himself. It's more of a rant. as It turns into a rant more than a prayer. And notice, it's filled with comparisons. Now, here's here's a danger of comparisons. Paul, in one of his letters, goes on and says, those who compare themselves with others are not wise. Why? There's only two outcomes from comparing yourself to another person. Now, let me tell you, we live in the day of social media where this happens all the time. Comparisons happen all the time. Let's admit that. There's only two outcomes. You're going to compare yourself to someone you think is inferior to you, which is going to lead to pride. Or you're going to compare yourself to someone who is, you think superior to you, and you're going to have an experience self-loathing. Most of the time, we're pretty good at finding folks that we feel superior to, and we compare ourselves to them, which is exactly what this religious man, this Pharisee, does here, is that he compares himself to a tax collector. Um, Now, interestingly, as we'll talk about a little next week, Jesus changed. There's been non-Christian, non-religious research done in historical settings to show that Jesus forever changed what the world thought of humility. Humility in the first century was disdained, was seen more as a vice than a virtue. People would have heard this story and they would have, you you almost chuckle when I read it, right? God, I thank you I'm not like other people. We we immediately just start to laugh at that because we see the pride just dripping from it. People in the first century would not have seen that. They would say, he's just thanking God for his righteousness. That's all he's doing. They would not have been offended by that. They would have been offended by the punchline, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That would have been the twist, the shocker in the whole story, not the story itself, the first century, which means we can be blinded in certain days and ages to certain things. And they were blinded to self-righteousness. So in, in, um, in his book, Humility, Andrew Murray who lived over 100 years ago, wrote a book 150 years ago called um, Humility, The Journey Toward Holiness. Uh, I mentioned I read this little book, little, little book you can read it one night. Um, and it just, I had to repent after every chapter. This is such a good book. We had a limited copy available last week. We've got more out there. Uh, if you want your butt kicked in a really good, healthy way, read this book, okay? We're not making anything, we're just passing on the cost to you, but we got a lot of copies out there to get it. But in this, he calls... Um, pride. He calls pride the, the gateway to hell. The gateway to hell. You've heard of gateway drugs. Oh, use marijuana might lead to other drugs. Pride is the gateway that will eventually lead to hell. Um, pretty, pretty serious concept when you say. Pretty serious thing indeed. Um, one of the books that I would put in my top five in terms of impact on me over the years was C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. And I read that one as a teenager, and I've gone back and read it a couple times since, but there's one chapter in there that
that has stood with me for, for years. And it, it, just, it just is like there in the back of my mind. He, he labeled the chapter the great sin. And here he'd been talking about virtue, Christian virtue, and what was moral and so forth and so on. And then he gets this chapter. It has a long introduction. Now, if I could somehow read the whole chapter to you and not put you to sleep, I would do that because it is that good. Get mere Christianity, read the book, but especially read the chapter called The Great Sin. Probably Google it and just find that, that chapter if you want. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, according to Christian teaching, tradition, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Uh, immorality, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Do you know that? That's how the old devil became Satan. It was pride. Pride leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. He says, does this seem exaggerated? If so, think it over. I pointed out a moment ago that the more pride you had, the more one disliked pride in others. In fact, if you want to find how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or patronize me or not mention me in their Facebook post? No, he didn't say that. I just added that. <laughs> or show off. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. No one's proud of being rich, clever, or good-looking. They are proud of being richer, cleverer, or better-looking than others. If someone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, they would have nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Comparison, bad thing, leads to pride, which is the gateway to hell. And this fellow is consumed with pride because he's consumed with comparisons. And we gotta be careful here those of us trying to follow Jesus, there are certain spiritual practices that we have. Now, Richard Foster also wrote a book about the same time, well, he wrote in the 70s, um, called Celebration of Discipline. And he says, there are certain spiritual practices, and he puts them in categories. Some are outer, meaning you're communal, you do them with others. Other people see you doing them, like come to church. Others are, are inward, are private, like um, silence, solitude, and Prayer often can be, or it can be public. And he said, the, the spiritual practices that are most in danger of being corrupted are the outer disciplines. Um, and, and, he, and he's, but why? Because if we're not careful, we begin to do it so that we'll get the praise of other people or to impress other folks. Now, the more Christian an area, the more prone that, that is, all right? And, and, and so... Here, we have two men, and they're in this place of prayer, all right? Now, you walk in, so you walk in, and you see this scene that Jesus just described. You've got one man, it says he stood by himself. What's he doing? He was in the, the, the typical first century Jewish mode of prayer was standing. Now, we think of prayer as kneeling. In the first century, they would have stood. They would lift their arms up, eyes open, not closed, eyes open, and look up to heaven. Now, if you walked into a room and there's a guy doing this and there's another guy in the back who's in the shadows, and he's, he won't even look, he's just looking down, who would you say was more spiritual? Careful how you answer that. 
Sometimes what seems to be true on the outside is not true on the inside. This guy seems to be spiritual. In fact, he's not. Um, He's only dependent on himself. So now we go to the next guy, the tax collector. Verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He prays. He admits his need. He's a sinner. And he asks for something. He asks for mercy. And you know what he gets? He gets mercy. You know what the Pharisee got? Nothing. He didn't ask for anything. Verse 14, I tell you that, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. And he says the very same thing he said in chapter 14. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What did this man have that the other didn't? Well, he had self-awareness. He was aware of who he was in the presence of a holy God. When we're in the presence of holiness, we know how unholy we are. That we're sinners in need of the grace of God. There was this book, I'll I'll reference it more next week, fascinating. It's on the spiritual life, considered one of the great writings on the spiritual life, written in the 14th century called The Cloud of Unknowing. And what's fascinating about the book is the author remained anonymous, and to this day, no one's been able to figure out who wrote it. Said, seeing yourself as you really are, defined humility. Humility is seeing yourself as you really are, and said, it's that simple. Um, But pride causes us to look at others and compare ourselves. Again, to quote C.S. Lewis, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that's above you. Who finds God? It's the one who's looking to God, not to himself. Um, and, and so this, this really is an example story. Bible scholars and folks who deal with this kind of stuff, they say this is one of Jesus' parables. It's an example story. In other words, I'm giving you an example. Be like one and not like the other. In other words, be like the tax collector. Don't be like the Pharisee. That's the point. That's the point. And he was self-aware. And his self-awareness, he didn't stay stuck on himself, led to a God focus. How about you? How are you doing with that whole humility, pride thing? Um, Late fall, I had been praying about a number of things, some big things, and, and I was asking God, I was, my, I was praying, God, I need a word. I need a word from you. There's one word, God, just one word will keep me going. Come on, God, I need a word. And so I was praying this for weeks. And I journal. I, I'm a crisis journaler. I'm not a really good journaler when things are going great. I don't write anything down, but when things are not going so great, I write everything down. <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad. It just is. And um, so I wrote this down. And one morning, as it's quiet, and out of some pain in my life, which I'll explain, I get the word. You know what God gave me? The word. And the word was repentance. Oh, come on, Lord. Can you give me something a little more positive than that? 
and he revealed to me, and I won't go into all the background, but it was out of, I was on the receiving end of stuff that I used to think and say myself. For years as a young pastor, I, I looked down on other pastors. I'm ashamed to say this. I even prayed about whether I would say it, but I would. Every profession does this, and you know, our church grew fast and big. It's the biggest church in Missouri, by golly, in the United Methodist Church. And I, I, I kind of got proud about that. And I would look down at other pastors because they had smaller churches. And I got on the receiving end a couple of that, and I saw how painful it was. And I did some serious repenting. Um, Where is, and I didn't even see it for a long time. That's a problem. Stuff is often invisible to us. What if you got alone? I mean, did it frequently and said, Lord, what do I need to see? Holy Spirit, reveal what I need to have revealed to me. And, and you know, ever since then, I feel free. It was funny that day, twice God confirmed us, like, okay, God, I'm getting the message. Thank you. Let me ask you, if humility leads to flourishing, how are you doing these days? Are you flourishing in your relationship with others? You know, I find, I, I, as a pastor, I've observed this through the years. Whether it's a divorce, a, a, a business blow up, whatever, when there's a relational discord at the center of it, almost always is pride. Pride. So how are you flourishing? Maybe that broken relationship is you got to deal with the root of it. It's pride. And maybe if you dealt with that and said, as we prayed, we sang earlier, God, I need you, and really prayed that, like this tax collector, maybe you'll find greater flourishing in that relationship, in all relationships in your life, and especially in your relationship with God. Because remember, this man, the, ta this, the tax collector, he goes home justified before God because he admitted his need. He confessed it. He didn't grovel. God doesn't want you to grovel. He just wants you to speak the truth. And so, where do you need to reflect? Let's take a moment. Let's do that as we come to the end of this message. Would you, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is working among us even now. So come, Holy Spirit, and reveal to us the things we need to have revealed. Where there is pride, may you point it out so that it may be taken from us and cast away. So just, sec, just take a second there, would you? And pray in your own words and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal. Now, maybe in this group it's not going to come, but maybe in the coming days when you're quiet it will. But let's start the prayer right now.
Thank you, Father, that when you reveal these things to us, you do not do it to condemn us. You want us to come into the light and to find your grace, just like this tax collector found mercy that day. Thank you that all who confess their sins find mercy. Thank you. Thank you for your love. And thank you for this beautiful thing called humility. And may we be clothed with it. For we pray in the name of the one who described himself as gentle and humble. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you enjoyed today's message, make sure to subscribe to this channel. Feel free to share this with others that God has put on your heart. To learn more about LaCroix Church or to find your next steps, head to lacroixchurch.org. Thanks again for checking us out, and we hope to see you soon.